Imagine Christianity suddenly became cool. I know it seems almost impossible. Christianity is rooted in timeless tradition and wisdom, a far cry from any kind of movement that might find automatic acceptance among mainstream culture. Sure, pop musicians and actors may embrace the Christian faith in carefully considered ways, but when they talk about it, they tend to keep their theological cards close to the vest. But I'm talking about the whole thing, right? Like the rebirth, exclusivity of the gospel for salvation, good works accompanying genuine faith, even explicit hope for Christ's second coming. I grew up in the 90s when Christian youth culture was happy to be within its own subculture. We were cool to each other, but we had pretty much accepted that we'd never be cool to the world. In a way, that was part of the appeal, right? We were being rebellious in our own way. If we couldn't rebel against our parents, we could rebel against the mainstream. We embraced Christian rock, we kissed dating goodbye, and asked God to make us a generation that would change the world. In fact, most Christian youth culture movements end up in that place trying to balance a traditional faith with cultural relevance. That's not to say those movements have always been so ineffective at evangelism. Believe it or not, there was a time when genuine Christianity started to find itself in the mainstream. Jesus started to catch the attention of the public in ways that went beyond scandal or skepticism. According to Larry Eskridge, author of God's Forever Family, the model for the movement was right there in the New Testament. He was actually involved in the Jesus People movement back in the 1970s. The Jesus People Movement embraced this stuff. There was a lot of Bible floating around, <laughs> and Bibles floating around uh, through this movement, and um, you know the serious Bible study uh, that was going on in uh, many of these Jesus People coffee houses, and groups, and communes, and what have you. The Jesus Movement emerged out of the hippie counterculture in the late '60s and early '70s, and it actually succeeded in giving biblical Christianity more social clout than it had before. From my vantage point, it was one of the most impactful Christian youth movements in modern history. And unlike my own youth group experience, the Jesus Movement's influence spanned far beyond the church walls. The Christian Standard Bible and Christianity Today present Living and Effective, a podcast about the moments when humanity and the Bible collide. In a way, the Jesus Movement mirrors so many other Christian youth movements in the past. But could it be that what really made it cool, at least for a brief moment, was their strict adherence to the Bible in a time when the counterculture they were a part of wanted to be chill about religious beliefs? So these earlier kind of proto-Jesus people (laughs) who come out of uh, San Francisco and in some of these other places, it really becomes clear that the book of Acts makes a huge impression upon them. And as one of the early lights said, you know, we are going to live the book of Acts like it's a script. But is trying to live out the book of Acts setting the bar a little too high? After all, there's a lot of debate about just how much the modern day church is even supposed to look like the church in Acts. Some argue that a lot of the miraculous events that took place in the book of Acts were only meant for that period of time. There are a lot of things we just can't replicate from that time. Of course, it's this type of thinking that might explain why young, idealistic Christians left their traditional churches in the first place. Those churches just weren't as optimistic that something big would happen in their day and time, in the same way that these youth were. You know, that everything we see there is, you know, 
it doesn't look anything like what these churches that we visit or <laughs> maybe the churches that I was raised in. What, you know, what about this Acts chapter 2 with this Pentecost stuff, yeah. um, these gifts of the Spirit? What about living in common? You know, which, of course, was a thing that was emerging in the uh, counterculture, a communal movement. So that resonated. You know, we see this and have this experience, and here it's right in the Bible. Yeah. So they want to do that, too. And so the communal living sort of springs right out of the Bible into the Jesus movement. In a sense, Christian youth at that time took the counterculture as an opportunity to embrace something that was a lot closer to the book of Acts than their churches seemed to be. They really wanted to fill that gap. But it wasn't clear if they would be able to impact the culture in the way the early church did. And if they did, if the payoff would even be worth it. I mean, would it really be as fulfilling and utopian a community as they might expect? Well, they had kind of an uphill battle to fight before they could even get close to finding out. It turns out the counterculture came preloaded with its own significant downsides. You know, the 60s represented this period of rejection and sort of breaking free from all the restraints of, you know, straight society. You know, old uh, social taboos, uh, freeing up sexuality, experimentation with drugs, which was a major part of the whole thing. As publicity about the movement grew, it became increasingly attractive to a lot of people who were A, seekers, but B, also people who weren't well-adjusted <laughs> in their own situation. A lot of runaway kids end up in San Francisco in the summer of 1967, and it becomes chaos. The streets become cluttered, dirty, thousands of kids sleeping in the San Francisco night, you know, on the street. Uh, so they're freezing to death. <laughs> and crime, venereal diseases are running rampant. Uh, people are on bad drug trips. It really becomes a very negative sort of thing. This was a challenging environment for the Jesus people to step into. But it also presented a pretty good opportunity for the Christian faith to be seen in a new light. It's out of that that you get a core group of these sort of proto-hippies, I mean, a little bit older than the average hippie, but people who become converted <laughs> yeah. know, in the midst of all this and then begin to look at the mess they're seeing mm. in San Francisco and saying it's the responsibility of the church to do something about this. In the Bay Area, what happens, you get a number of evangelical pastors to form an organization to help some of these sort of hip evangelists to work amongst their own people. You know, John McDonald is a uh, classmate of Billy Graham's from Wheaton College. You have Ed Plowman, who eventually became the uh, uh, sort of uh, contributing news editor to Christianity Today magazine and uh, some other individuals. So they are helping these uh, other folks go to the streets, you know, start uh, communal homes, that sort of thing, to help and connect with the hippies and to feed them and you know, point them in the direction of uh, some sort of uh, uh, hand up. But you also have other pockets where, you know, the uh, youth culture is moving towards hippie and are moving into the, you know, at that point, contemporary drug culture. So they begin to try to reach out to those kids. And in the process, there's a tendency to try to identify with the kids a little more and to win them over. And that usually means some sort of a more 
counterculturally friendly <laughs> manner, uh, dress, you know, language, what have you. But you also have a second and what appears to probably to have been a larger cohort of people, and these are the kids uh, in the evangelical churches and conservative churches who, you know, let's face it, late 60s, if you maybe like rock and roll <laughs> music and you kind of like the long hair and the fashions, but your church is telling you that all these things are no-nos, the Jesus people come along, <laughs> and this is a way to sort of survive youth culture in America in the 70s. You know, you become a Jesus person. You know? <laughs> and there's this whole group of, you know, there are a lot of high school kids coming out of the churches, the suburban towns, small towns, who embrace the Jesus people persona as a way to be relevant, that it expresses Christianity in a way that they can understand, in a way that they like, uh, gives them a little elbow room for, you know, youth culture, and a Christian baptized version of youth culture. A brief aside here on the concept of cool. I have this theory I'd like to share with you, which I'm sure is not unique to me. It just seems kind of self-evident. The theory is that there's this elusive idea of cool that has little to do with trends and everything to do with authenticity. That's why fads like Lava Lamps, Grundrock, and Fortnite tend to be seen as cool for brief moments while they're still new innovations. They become lame when everyone's dad like starts dabbing or whatever. And let's be clear about this, the hippie counterculture was actually cool. And most likely it was the sincerity of that movement that made it cool. You could say a lot about hippie culture and its many downsides, but you'd be hard pressed to doubt that they were sincere. These people believed they could change the world. They just may not have fleshed out exactly how, but they believed they could do it. So it's sort of obvious why Christian youth tended to gravitate toward these trends. I mean, it's not so much that they actively wanted to be cool and relevant. I think it's more just that they did relate and they liked this concept. They liked what they saw. It didn't mean they had to throw out everything they'd known about their faith. In fact, Jesus' people were known for one particular belief that would have been seen as potentially offensive to anyone who wasn't on board. Yeah, this is a serious um, gospel of exclusivity. Right, you know? right. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the, the Turner Burn message was huge for, you know, I mean, certain groups emphasized it more than others, but... Uh, you know, that was the reality in most of the literature was this, you know, God is coming here. You know, Jesus came to die for your sins to save you. Okay, so this didn't apply across the board, but if you think about it in some ways, this made the Jesus people even cooler. Because ultimately it was hard to question their authenticity. Which, um, you know, is a radical in-your-face yeah. <laughs> sort of uh, approach uh, amid, you know, sort of the hippie love and peace and uh, every whatever your thing is, is cool, you know, right. sort of mindset. And uh, they began flashing the one-way sign, which was the uh, index finger held up indicating one way Jesus, one way to heaven. Wow. Almost by accident, Jesus people ended up looking like both hippies and squares. Uh, the Rose Bowl Parade on January 1st, 1971. Billy Graham and Ruth Graham were the co-marshals of the parade. And a bunch of the Jesus people 
showed up, you know, passing out their newspapers and passing out coffee and donuts to people uh, at the par- on the parade round. And Billy Graham starts returning this sign. Now, he has no clue <laughs> what this is. And then other people started doing this as well. And upraised finger, you know, one way, one way. Yeah. Okay. And there's some speculation that a lot of people were thinking, we're number one, USA number one sort of thing, because Billy Graham's identified with Richard Nixon and that sort of conservative side of the cultural barricades. So at any rate, by the time the parade was over, Billy Graham knew what had been going on. And um, so he began to comment about this. And the press was like, wow, you know, Billy Graham, of course, he's in his heyday at this point, you know, his probably the uh, peak of his uh, cultural appeal. And uh, that really began to get the uh, uh, newspapers and magazines curious about what was going on. Unwittingly, the Jesus People movement had managed to introduce American youth culture to Billy Graham. And Graham's openness to the movement gave him even more credibility with them and their peers. At that moment, it seemed like maybe these two seemingly disparate circles in the Venn diagram were moving closer and closer together. And all of this was accomplished, remember, without compromise. Quite the opposite, really. The one-way finger is interesting to me. Yeah. Exclusivity is like a brave thing to make your rallying cry, right? Yeah. Especially in hippie culture, where everyone's looking... All over the place exactly. for truth. Yeah, that was, you know, sort of the, what of these Jesus freaks are coming up and, you know, they're insistent, you know, we can rap yeah. with them and talk with them and everything is good, but, you know, they're in very insistent. Jesus is the only way, you know, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. That's yeah. it. And it's here that we see how the Jesus movement's use of the book of Acts as a script goes well beyond communal living and the overturning of traditions. They also embraced that same uncompromising approach to truth claims that the apostles did. Not only did that approach feel edgy and authentic, but to many at that time, it offered a kind of oasis of certainty when everything else was called into question. Perhaps the most well-known impact that Jesus people had was in the music community. Years later, specifically in the late 70s, The movement had all but fizzled out, but Bob Dylan came to Christ because of sort of the legacy of the Jesus People movement. Whether or not his faith lasted beyond that era has been debated, and he's reverted to a more enigmatic approach to addressing his beliefs for decades now. And yeah, he's a complicated figure, but the Jesus People movement is complicated. In a way, they're sort of trapped and balancing these two very combative elements of culture at once. And they're doing so in a way that feels authentic and coherent. And the complicated nature of Bob Dylan's story really draws out just how complex the Jesus People movement's impact really is. Here's the thing. That impact doesn't start with some big rally or concert. It starts small, at a Bible study. Dylan's conversion traces back to Jesus people uh, folks. Ken Gullickson, who was one of the pastors at Calvary Chapel in Costa Mesa, had by this point become involved with some of the early congregations of the Vineyard. And they had a Bible study. And Bob Dylan began to attend 
you know, this Bible study and went through their course, yeah. you know, sort of their Bible survey yeah. <laughs> course. And so that was where he was getting his biblical, a lot of his biblical input for Slow Train Coming and some of his subsequent albums. After that, his Christian phase was directly fed by these Jesus people types. So if what happened with Billy Graham was a sign of the movement's early influence on church people, I think Dylan's story serves as a reminder of how that influence was longer lasting with those who were outside of the church. What seemed to be this amazing national phenomenon, this sort of young person's alternative to the Timothy Leary tune in, you know, drop out LSD drug culture kind of thing. This is Greg Thornbury, author of the book, Why Should the Devil Have All the Good Music? You had signature events like the Explo 72 at the Cotton Bowl in Dallas, where you had Billy Graham finally got on board and 120,000 kids packed the Cotton Bowl in Dallas and Bill Bright was involved. And you had people like the person who I wrote my biography on, Larry Norman, and Chris Christopherson and Johnny Cash playing the music. When the mainstream church started to embrace rather than push back against what youth culture had to offer, mountains could be moved. It it seemed for a moment in time as though Jesus could be a thing that would bring the nation together rather than tear it apart. Of course, while the model of the church we see in Acts is full of all kinds of inspiring positive stories, the story of the early church doesn't come without its fair share of negativity. The Church of Acts was buffeted from all sides, by the Pharisees, the legalistic super-apostles, and the more worldly crowd. On the one hand, people can't help but respect an authentic, transparent faith. On the other hand, there are some things about the true faith that just annoy people. We see this play out in really specific ways in Dylan's career. They just released a box set of the Dylan's Gospel Years. He sounds like a charismatic preacher. I mean, his most famous song was, You Gotta Serve Somebody. Uh, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to serve somebody. You know, you can't serve two masters. God will not be mocked. It was very biblical language. By all accounts, Dylan appeared to be born again. But while fans were committed and passionate about the old Bob Dylan, the new Bob Dylan rubbed a lot of people the wrong way. What was the reaction of the fans? Horror. Horror. They were completely thrown overboard, shocked. People didn't know what was going on. When it happened, it was just like, this is just absolutely devastating. And people were booing at his concerts. Why were they so upset? Well, because he wasn't Bob Dylan anymore. Bob Dylan was supposed to, you know, be this sort of outlaw who sat on his own fence post and whistled his own tune. And his, his music had always been very evocative. It was socially conscious, but it wasn't preachy. All of a sudden, he's like, you know, preaching at people. You would have thought that Dylan's endorsement of the Bible would have increased Christianity's social standing at that time. Instead, religion was seen as a passing fad that led to Dylan's downfall. By that time, around 1979, the novelty had just worn off. What was once cool was just crowded. The longer it lasted, the more opportunity people had to jump on the bandwagon, and the movement ultimately lost its edge. It's just like a game of telephone. Once it gets passed down the line about 20 or 30 times, 
the message doesn't have the intensity or the the sharpness or the original vision of the the people who who started it. It just becomes kind of banal. Believe it or not, that's right out of the book of Acts too. A lot of times we think of the whole book of Acts as a success story about the church. But it's also a series of case studies and how they handled mundane process problems, scandal, and conflict with the outside world. I mean, after the honeymoon phase, the church found itself confronted with spiritual leaders who persecuted them because they were jealous. Spiritual leaders who tried to capitalize on the movement. Starving widows. Racial tensions. The first martyr. The dude who martyred that guy wanted to become an apostle himself, and they had to deal with that whole thing. Paul and Barnabas getting a big fight, not to mention like half the sermons they're preaching basically just make everybody mad. They spend a lot of time running away from people in general. Anyway, you get the point. Whatever the time period, being a part of the Jesus movement is not easy. Maybe that's the point. Maybe part of what makes the Jesus movement impactful in the first place is the degree to which they open themselves up to critique from both sides. I asked Trevin Wax, the author of This Is Our Time and the director of Bibles and Reference at Lifeway, to help me figure out exactly what to make of the model the Jesus movement left us. It was a full-throated embrace of the Word of God, a fresh embrace of God's Word and the desire to live according to God's Word. In, in all of its glory, in all of its hardness, in all of the hard edges that both was compelling to some in the traditional church and some in the hippie world, and at the same time was pulling against both of those worlds as well. In all of the places where God's Word was running up against both the church culture of the day, that was in some cases more inclined to promote and perpetuate certain man-made traditions, and going up against the societal views of the day to put forth some views that were out of step with mainstream American culture. Ironically, some of the only tangible vestiges of this anti-institutional movement are the institutional denominations it spawned, namely the Vineyard and Calvary Chapel. But maybe that's for the best. Maybe it isn't the end of the world that the movement faded away as quickly as it exploded onto the scene. The Jesus people weren't fighting to shore up cultural influence for the long haul. They were trying to be faithful to God's word as it was revealed to them. And that put them right in the middle of those who prize tradition and those who prize change. Like the Apostle Paul and the rest of the early church leaders, they confronted the assumptions of people on both sides of their movement, with nothing but scripture to make their case. And that kind of bravery comes with its own reward. One of the benefits of youth culture is the ability to see with clarity the errors of those who had come before. This is particularly true with the Jesus Movement. The Jesus Movement was very socially minded and, and conscious. This was a way of bringing Martin Luther King's beloved community to the white, largely the white community, and recognizing the sins of the institutional church in the past and wanting to do something about that. On the next episode of Living and Effective, the Jesus Movement recognized that when it comes to the institutional church's role in the civil rights movement, there was a lot for the church to reckon with. But while much of the institutional church fell silent during those early days of racial strife, 
God was using his Bible to stir up a kind of supernatural bravery. You could be arrested, you could be maced, you could be beaten. What's going to encourage you? It's going to be all those Bible verses, Psalm 23, you know, uh, walking through the valley of the shadow of death. You know, if God is for us, who can be against us? This has been Living and Effective. You can find more info at www.livingandeffective.com. Make sure and rate and review us on iTunes to help us spread the word. Living and Effective is a collaboration between Christianity Today and Christian Standard Bible. It is written and produced by me, Richard Clark, an editor at Christianity Today, and Cray Allred. Executive producers are Nick Reinerson and me, Richard Clark. Engineering by Jonathan Clausen. Music by Sweeps and the Always People. Special thanks to Trevin Wax, Brandon Smith, James Kennard, Michael Wojcik, Jennifer Clark, Morgan Lee, Natalie Lederhouse, Derek Rishmaui, Alicia Sharp, Ted Olson, and Mark Galley.